Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision for the month of April. It's our wonderful pleasure to have a very well-known low vision specialist from the Chicago area with us. And I'm going to jump over our usual announcements and we will put them in at the end of our call this evening. The one thing, thank you all for joining us this evening and especially Christine Chaikin, who puts so many of our Let's Talk Low Vision calls together and Allison Smitherman, who very graciously offered to host for us this evening. And with that, I want to welcome our special guest, Dr. Kara Bliss. And I know I'm probably still not saying it right, so we're just going to go with Kara. Um, good evening, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision. So much for having me. Now, you're with the Chicago Lighthouse. I'm just hanging up all my questions here. You're with the Chicago Lighthouse um, Low Vision Center. Tell me something. What we're wondering is, is do you have a virtual component or um, do you, why don't, let's start, let's step back a little bit. Why don't we start with what services do you offer for low, people with low vision? Great question. Um, so I'm a low vision optometrist and I oversee the clinical services division at the Lighthouse, um, which includes occupational therapy, uh, low vision optometry examinations, assistive technology, orientation <laughs> mobility, and uh, psychologic counseling and adjustment to vision loss, in adjustment to vision loss. Um, those are our, our clinical services, but the Lighthouse has uh, an abundance of programs and services, including employment services, um, children's services, which include a school um, and a children's development center, as well as early intervention services, um, an adult living skills program, um, several um, support groups, uh, children's a virtual parent support group for parents of children with vision impairment as well as an adult support group, and then seniors programming, um, just to name kind of a, a few of our programs that we offer. It is an inc incredibly well-known lighthouse for its services. And, uh, our, and, and you've certainly touched on a good number of them. <laughs> yeah, our clinic serves um, over 3,000 individuals annually um, with a majority of in-person services for individuals in Chicago, the greater Chicagoland area in Illinois. Uh-huh. Okay, that's, uh, and we do have a good number of people in the Chicago area uh, who I think will be listening tonight and through the podcast as well. Um, with your programs focused on target age groups, um, children's enrichment programs, and senior programs, plus other programs like the Forsyth. Um, how can members of CCLVI participate in your activities and programs 
when they live outside the Chicago area. Well, I think we've just kind of touched on those issues um, with anything that, with things like the parent support group and that, that are virtual, unless there's anything else that occurs to you. Yeah, so certainly our support groups are virtual. Um, we, for, in, you know, individuals within Illinois, because we, for telehealth and telemedicine, we have to practice within state lines currently. Um, so we have to be licensed for in the state for the client that we're serving, but we do offer virtual um, telehealth services, especially in psychological counseling and occupational therapy. Our assistive technology program offers assistive technology training on um, assistive technology that someone may have purchased, but also out of the box technologies, learning to you know use your accessibility features on an iPhone or an Android system or tablet. That can all be done virtually. And so we do have patients or clients, I should say nationwide, who do call us for those services as well. Um, and then outside of the support groups, um, some of our programs like our Forsyth Entrepreneurial Program um, is part is in it's a it's part of the blind vending program um, and all offers right. trade offers training in that, to entrepreneurs and that is in 30 states and we also have a research division at the lighthouse um, whose current project is um, an intracortical vir intracortical virtual prosthesis icvp um, and they're recruiting nationwide for individuals who are blind who may be interested in participating in their study um, so we do have some opportunities for individuals to use our services and resources. And we also, you know, are well versed in our sister agencies. And so we do get calls where we will resource and find um, services that are closer to home for some individuals who reach out to us who are outside the state. And do you have a social media presence? We do have a social media presence. We are on all social media sites except for TikTok. So Facebook, Instagram, um, we have a YouTube channel where we review assistive technology products. Um, so we, we do have all of those um, social media sites that you can follow us on. Oh, very good. And that's just to go into Facebook, for instance, and put in Chicago Lighthouse and see what pops up, I assume. Yep. And you'll see kind of what's going on at the lighthouse. Um, sometimes we feature some of our programs. Um, sometimes we feature a client story. Um, and, and certainly if there are events um, and virtual events, um, we'll, those are advertised through our social media site as well and marketed that way. Uh -huh. I think it's very impressive. Um... I come from an I myself come from an area that does that originally come from an area that does not have a lighthouse, um, and where I live now, I would not say it's the most uh, modernized group on earth, <laughs> shall we say? Um, but you know, but but it 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 works for. Many, especially older people who are experiencing sight loss. And I know you've had a particular interest in uh, sight loss with 
for seniors and especially with Alzheimer's and dementia issues. Can you tell yeah. us a little about that? I sure can. Um, so it's a clinical area of interest of mine because many optometrists um, overlook that age with aging, not only comes cognitive change, but aging come with aging comes vision impairment in some situations with acquired eye disease, age-related eye disease. Um, so we do see, you know, those comorbidities existing with one another. And, um, and it's important for us to be aware of it because sometimes patients can't articulate the cognitive changes and how they may be impacting their function. And so it's presumed that everything perhaps is related to a visual change like macular degeneration, whereas it's not. There's a difficulty reading perhaps because there's macular degeneration, but also there's some um, cognitive change. Um, so certainly that's a research area, uh, an area of interest that I have lectured on um, and do my best to educate the optometric profession um, and the eye doctors out there that they should be looking for this and that they may have to adjust their examination style. Um, certainly we see patients sometimes who have severe cognitive impairment um, may have had a stroke and have aphasia. And so they have lost their ability to communicate with us. And, um, and we have to use different modalities um, to assess them and to assess what their function is, and then to establish goals that we can work on to improve their visual function uh, through the process of low vision rehabilitation. And then certainly, you know, the, the depression um, depression increases, there's an increased risk of depression with age a, alongside an increased risk of depression if you have acquired vision loss. And so counseling is of utmost importance in our consideration in our care and management of patients presenting to us, um, whether that's depression associated with their adjustment to vision loss or whether it's just age-related depression because of social isolation, um, we certainly saw an increase of the use of our psychological services, especially through telehealth um, during COVID um, and during the height of COVID. So um, those are just areas I, you know, that we do our best to educate the eye care providers as well as educate the clients and patients coming to us that there are resources for, um, for those other things that may accompany vision loss with aging. And let me ask you something. I just was reading an article within the last couple of days that had to do with hearing loss. Uh, it's it kind of on the same topic that uh, that people who have some hearing loss, uh, seniors in particular, tend to have more of a cognitive, possible uh, appear to have. More of a some more of a cognitive uh, decline, uh, and so they're recommending that people continue to to wear their hearing aids. And my theory has always been, you know, I put in my hearing aids, and after a while, I'm like exhausted because you're getting so much more information than you ordinarily would. And what I'm wondering is, does something like that correlate? with senior uh, age-acquired vision loss um, in kind of in the reverse. And what I'm wondering is, are there low vision aids and appliances 
uh, that it can help people with uh, the beginnings, you know, a relatively early level of uh, cognitive uh, loss. Absolutely. Uh, that's a really, really great point that you brought up. Um, studies have shown that individuals who have acquired vision loss and um, especially if they don't get low vision resources, so they cannot read anymore, um, they don't write. Those are all cognitively stimulating things for us that keep our mind healthy and active. Seniors that do their crossword puzzle every day, but then lose vision. And so the crossword is too hard to see. So they put it aside and don't do it. Can see cognitive changes related to that. Um, you know, and, and similarly, it's not always it's not always that we can say they're causative, that the vision loss caused the cognitive change and that they wouldn't have had the cognitive change otherwise, but it certainly is a risk factor. And any sensory impairment, like hearing impairment, um, that reduces information for cognitive processing can have an impact, certainly, on cognition and long-term health and of our cognition. So I guess that means we all need to get our magnifiers, uh, our electric magnify, electronic magnifiers and CCTVs and that out and keep reading our monthly books. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I, t I tell my patients, you know, don't give up, even if it's harder to do, even do a little bit of it each day. Think of it as homework. Think of it as exercise for your brain. So you may have done the crossword all at one sitting previously. But now perhaps that crossword, you pick at it and you do five minutes and then you're tired and you're fatigued or you're frustrated with your vision. But it's better to do that than and to be resourceful and use your magnifiers than to simply give up on some of those things that you once enjoyed. And use and use uh, large print. Although Absolutely. I would say it's very hard to get large print crossword puzzles. Um, that are above about a third grade level sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I, especially if you're a high performer, you know, you, the New York times crossword or some of those more challenging crosswords. Um, yeah. Those are better under a CCTV. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, do you know of any other programs? I'm just wondering for people not in the Chicago area. Are there any other programs around the country that you might know of that people could get in contact with uh, to? That, yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. There are certainly, you know, a lot of, a lot of organizations um, with outreach and networking. I'm off the top of my head. I'm, I'm not recalling their name. I can send it to you if we can. Um, but there's an organization in California, for instance, that does um, support groups for seniors of all, not necessarily with visual disability, but they've noted that they have a, a large cohort of individuals participating in their support group who have visual disability. So, um, so they are looking at, you know, programming and I can't recall the name of the organization off the top of my head but certainly there are resources like that um, 
we recently launched something called My Tools for Living. It's our online store and it leads into our assistive technology platform where we review products. Um, it has a quiz feature for individuals. So you can put in the type of vision loss or vision impairment you have, the goals that you have. Um, if it's, you know, reading, for example, then you can input, do you want a device that reads to you or do you want something that's visual um, or both? And then you can also say, do I want something that's portable or do I want, you know, do I want something that's stationary or something that I is somewhat portable, but maybe not, you know, not as, as light and easy to carry all around. It's not going to fit in your purse. And we used our assistive technology expertise to try and help consumers with using that quiz, get products that are recommended for them that are going to meet their needs. Because certainly in the online space, if somebody doesn't have a resource close to home and they're looking to purchase some of the assistive technology, they can go to the product developer's website, but they're only going to get that product developer's opinion on their devices. And so we pride ourselves on carrying a wide selection of devices and not being biased, but being honest with the consumer of what's going to be best to meet their goals. And so I would encourage people to check out mytoolsforliving.org because um, you can get some, you, you know, you can learn about the latest technologies that are coming out. We're constantly up, updating the website for that reason. And um, and then you can watch product videos for some things where we'll we'll describe where the buttons are and where the controls are, and then you can schedule consultations with our technology team to have devices recommended for you. Um, on there, there are also resources like a list of we try and keep as up to date as we can, though it's constantly changing. Uh, we try and keep a list of um, apps that are helpful for people who are blind or visually impaired. Um, on Android and iPad, iPad, iPhone, or iOS operating systems. Um, so there's some useful handouts there um, on apps that, again, we've we've kind of vetted them, and we don't include some that we found to not be really beneficial. Um, but we try and keep that list updated as a resource, knowing that you know there are many people out there looking for resources that simply can't get to us at the Chicago Lighthouse. And again, that's toolsforliving.org? Mytoolsforliving.org, yes. Mytoolsforliving.org. Mm -hmm. That's definitely something we should add. Um, Council of Citizens for Clove Vision has a pretty expansive resource uh, section on our website, which is cclvi.org. And that should definitely be included in there. Uh, we'll have to get that in there. I like that. But that just sounds very, very good. I especially and like the idea of the of the quiz part, you know, so that it isn't. Um, I'm wondering if there's a question on there. Of, do you want to spend less than $3,000? <laughs> That's a great, great question. It, you know, it's very unfortunate that um, in the in the post pandemic kind of era, we've seen so much inflation passed on with these devices. They've all gone up in price, unfortunately. Um, it makes them a little harder to afford for some consumers. Um, you know, payment plans and financing options and things like that. We also have a resource section um, that we try and keep up to date on 
programs around the country that can help people help make technology, assistive technology more affordable. Um, but it's still, it's the number one barrier and it's a really, you know, thorn in my side, so to speak. Even, even low vision devices like magnifiers and telescopes um, are sometimes out of reach for patients. And so we do have some grants um, and um, that are able to assist our patients, but it's, it's unfortunate that insurance still doesn't cover some costs of these devices. Insurance or Medicaid, Medicare. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're working on that, but I think it's still got a, a way to go before that happens, unfortunately. Yes. But uh, by the time you're ready to retire, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm I think it's going to be beyond my done. time, but. <laughs> Hear me? Yes. yes. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about lighting. You know, it's a, a, a big concern to those of us with low vision. Um, lighting seems to be a, a difficult thing to deal with um do you have any kind of um resources or um you know any program that you might offer to help people figure out what lighting would work for them yes at, um our occupational therapists tend to do a majority of our lighting assessments and work and that can be um, that is generally done in someone's home environment. So we'll go into the home. Um, Mattingly Low Vision, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that company, um, does have a, um, a lighting assessment instrument that we use that then allows us to assess what type and temperature of lighting is best for a client and then make recommendations as to what bulbs are going to be in that range um, that we found in the assessment is best for that individual. So we can make recommendations on these are the bulbs to look for if you're replacing light bulbs and or these are some lighting appliances to buy specifically. Um, there are so many lights out on uh, lights on the market. Generally in low vision, the rule of thumb, so to speak, or the guidelines um, I, I tell patients, if you can't get to a lighting specialist, go shopping for lighting, kind of look at, do you like a cooler tone? Do you like a yellower tone? Are you sensitive flu to fluorescence? Um, do, you know, do, do the new LEDs bother you? They tend to have kind of a bluer tone to them. Um, and then knowing that, look for always lighting that can be directed task-wise. So below eye level, because above eye level is when you tend to get the glare from it, but you need the light on what you want to see. So you're kind of spotlighting things. And always, over, if you're using a gooseneck, kind of, and you're sitting in a chair to read, you want it over the shoulder of your better seeing eye, or you want the lighting kind of spotlighted over towards the eye, especially if you have unequal vision loss between the eyes, towards the eye that sees the best. Um, so those are just a couple of, a couple of things that you can do. Um, but generally, yeah, it's that, it's that overhead lighting that gives individuals a lot of glare, but yet they need all the light that they can on the task at hand. So you want flexible arms, goosenecks, um, some, you know, certainly there are a lot of lights on the market now that are portable 
um, that use, you know, a, that are chargeable and then portable. So you can move them around the kitchen and, you know, spotlight them over your cutting board um, and then move them over to an office space so that you can move them around um, and get a little more use than having to set up lighting in each individual room, which also can become very costly. And what also is coming to market, um, and we have a couple of different um, couple of different lights that have come to market. Um, Eschenbach has an, a new light that is adjustable. So you can adjust the temperature of it. So it can be kind of warmer or cooler and you can adjust the intensity. And so lighting like that is also really useful because you're not always in one environment necessarily. And so you may want something, I, I equate it to, you know, you, so many people install dimmers um, on their lights so that they can change, you know, they can adjust the lighting for themselves um, to be optimal. It's similar on these lights. Idea. That's always been my issue with this. Mm -hmm. Is that it's, you know, it's fine for doing one thing, but by the time I go to do something else, it's way too much, too much light. And then, All right, and I think I'm, oh, yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say filters are also, you know, many people, if, if they can't adjust the lighting, benefit from filters. And those come in all kind of shades of the rainbow. And so um, filters are, are another thing to look at um, if you have light sensitivity. Sometimes, you, you know, a lot of filters, if they're just gray or they're too dark, they're just, they're reducing contrast. And you're actually, you want a filter that, um, that you want a filter that keeps the contrast. So plum and boysenberry, sometimes ambers um, can often be better filters than just simply your gray sunglasses. Good evening, Terry. Hi, Michael. And just a note that Allison gave you permission to talk. Yeah, I noticed that. But it's anyway, dangerous. I didn't think neither one of y'all wanted to let me talk. But anyway, uh, Dr. Crumbless, thank you for coming. And uh, hopefully look forward to maybe meeting you at the American Council Convention because y'all are going to be an exhibitor this year. We and, are. We are yes. indeed. And so I'm, I was excited when I heard you were coming tonight. And, uh, and I want just just to say welcome and we look forward to seeing you in Schomburg in July. And do I go about uh, verifying that I have Charles Benet syndrome? That's I, a great, qu you know, great I, question, Larry. I'm, I'm, I self-diagnosed myself having heard what it is because I see these things. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I want, I want to make it official somehow. <laughs> and, and what does that, and what does that mean? And what benefit or harm do I get from it? So that's a great question. So for those listening who may not know what Charles Bonnet syndrome is yet, Charles Bonnet syndrome is a syndrome experienced in approximately 30% of individuals with acquired vision loss where they experience visual hallucinations. And that can be um, geographic patterns and shapes, um, plaid and polka dots, for instance. It can be plants, animals, and even faces and people. Um, but 
the difference between it, uh, the visual hallucination associated with Charles Bonnet syndrome and vision loss and other psychologic hallucinations is that the person knows that they're not real. That's the main differentiating factor is that they're not a psychologic hallucination. And generally, for because individuals have vision loss, they'll describe these hallucinations as more vivid and clear than they see the world. And so they can tell very easily, I don't see things that clearly. So I, that's clearly not a person. Um, and so as long as that insight is retained, we don't necessarily get concerned that there's uh, that there may be other cognitive changes going on that we need to rule out other causes of neurologic hallucinations. So in most cases, we it's diagnosed based on a discussion with your doctor about the hallucinations, what you're seeing, and and the fact that you have vision loss, and we put it together, and it's as simple as that. And as far as the management of it, um, you know, it, there is a code uh, for an examination for visual hallucinations. And our plan generally is reassurance and education. Um, most people find once they know what's causing these, and initially, many people get these near to the onset of their of their vision loss or after a drop in vision will cause these hallucinations. And so many people then think, oh no, I've lost my vision and now I'm losing my mind. <laughs> and so, um, so the most important thing that we can do is offer reassurance and education that this occurs in about a third of individuals who have acquired vision loss um, at some point. For many people, the hallucinations will self-resolve. Sometimes that's with unfortunately worsening a vision. Other times people just kind of get used to them. Um, it's thought that their hallucinations are because we're looking at less and have less visual input. Our brain has always had this level of neurologic activity, but we've suppressed it because we're looking at so many things in the world that we don't experience the hallucinations. But when we're not seeing the world as clearly, not getting as much visual input, now we see these hallucinations and are aware of them. Um, occasionally, I will have patients who are it gives them anxiety. Um, and in that case, sometimes we'll do counseling and there are some medications, but for a majority of patients, just education and reassurance and things that stimulate your vision, like flipping the lights on and off or blinking can sometimes make the hallucination go away. That doesn't go away. <laughs> Not no. for me. Not, <laughs> Not for, for me. you. <laughs> when I'm watching television, uh, I have a flat screen on the wall. And when I'm watching that flat screen, I have a snack table underneath the flat screen. And every time I, I lose the focus on the TV on the wall, the snack table becomes the furniture television set I grew up in in the 1950s. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and with, it's always with, there. With, with, the, with the static on the screen, and uh, the whole nine mm -hmm. yards. Which it often was in 1950s too. Right, which it often was in 1950s, <laughs> static on the screen. But it was a round screen or a oval screen in, in a piece of furniture, in a wooden, wooden uh, box of furniture. Yep, that sounds that sounds typically like like Charles Bonnet. So yeah, the best thing I, I would offer is if anyone, including yourself, is experiencing it and, and wants a formal diagnosis, many people will 
have done some research and will come to me and say, I'm, I have Charles Bonnet syndrome. Um, so I'm similar to you. And I, and there's, there's not necessarily a harm in that, but you certainly having a conversation with your eye doctor about it. Um, yeah, I've been, I, I, I've, I asked him about it. I, yeah. I asked him about it and he shrugged his shoulders. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's, it used to be a condition that was seldom known, but in recent years, there's been a lot more education to practitioners about the existence of it and a few more publications. So, um, more practitioners know about it, but certainly not everyone. Right. I guess what I guess my glaucoma specialist is not one of them. What a wonderful presentation. My name is Jane Perry, and I'm from Falmouth, Massachusetts, and we do not have a lighthouse out here. My question to you is, uh, I recognize pigmentosa with a syndrome, and as a clinician, do you see or do you have any patients that has Bardet-Beetle syndrome? Absolutely. Absolutely. The reason why I ask Mm -hmm. is because I believe in outreach and resources information. There is the Marshfield Clinic, I don't know if you know about that, that people can go to, uh, and also the um, Bardi Beatles Syndrome Family Association has a webpage, and I think either in June or in the fall, we're having regional conferences again, and there's one in Chicago, which leads me to my other question, which is in the 1990s, where you live in Chicago, there was a doctor that... I met in 1990, and I don't know if he's passed away, and I don't know if you've heard of him, but he opened the door to me about Bardi Beetle syndrome, and his name was Dr. Gerald Fishman. Yes, um, Doctor Doctor Doctor, he absolutely is. Um, he oh. actually just retired um, okay. two two years ago, and he um, back in the 90s he would have been at the University of Illinois Chicago. Um, but he, he moved his practice over to the Chicago lighthouse. And so we practiced to we practiced together, um, for some time before his retirement. And, uh, he was a fantastic doctor and, um, and certain, certainly knew enough. The father of BBS, even though they used to call L allowance moon, because I realized that I wasn't the freak waiting for the clone circus from town when I had extra digits, which is the key factor. And yes. he has done research on BBS and Stargots and Ushers and Macular and the whole nine yards. So I'm thrilled that he was there with it. and you know of him because yes. he is he's awesome. Right up there with Dr. Bill. Thank you for allowing yeah. me to speak. And I hope you'll of pass course. that information on to your colleagues and resources about Bardi Beetle Syndrome Family Association. Thank I you. will. Thank you for the resource, Jane. I appreciate it. Hi. Um, I just wondered, yeah, I I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but I'm dealing with a little bit of an issue where I have a pair of reading glasses that broke and they're not, I mean, they have a magnification in them. So, you know, you don't necessarily want to take them to just like some glass repair place. Um, I, I believe they can be fixed but I'm not sure. I don't really need a low vision evaluation. It's a part of the glass where the hinge broke that that holds the one earpiece. Do you have any suggestions of 
how I might go about even finding a place that would repair them or, uh, and if you don't, that's okay. But I just, you know, you're in the field. So I thought I would just throw it out and see if you did. Sure. Donna, were they prescribed um, by a low vision clinic to have like specific magnification in them? Um, And, and I'm assuming you're not close to that clinic anymore or um, no, to go back I don't have them repaired. No, I'm not. That's the problem. Okay. I don't of even course. think that clinic's open. I don't even think that clinic is open. Um, so anymore. A, a couple of things, we certainly get calls like this. Um, you can, you can certainly outreach to me, um, and, you know, send a picture and I can take a look at what device we're looking at. Um, and then you know, give you a resource because many of these devices you can still, you can order a a frame, a new frame and pop the lenses out and into another one. But if it was a specific low vision device, it's, it's going to be a low vision doctor that probably has that resource versus, yeah, if you could go to your local optical, um, generally they are, if they aren't going to be able to just pop that lens in a new frame. So a, a good concern, but I'd be happy for you to, um, reach out to me um, Christine can give you my contact information, or you can just, you can look me up on the lighthouse, uh, website, Kara Crumbless, um, and, and send me an email or give me a, a phone call and we can, we can try and troubleshoot it for you. Um, oh, and great. See if resource I, to get them fixed. Yeah, that, that would, oh, that would be so helpful. Cause, uh, you know, they, they're, they're just a low tech. It's just a, it's having a magnifier in a pair of glasses. That's all it is. Yep. Yeah. But they're yeah, like well, my life. They're like my lifeline. And uh, I, I need them to carry them with me when I go out places. And so I'm, I'm I feel lost now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know what you mean. I have microscopic lenses. I just wear them around my neck because I must use them 75 times a day. And, and if I, if I don't have them, if I don't have them within arm's reach, I do. I feel like something's way missing. Uh, It's my, it's my line of security blanket. (laughs) Donna, what's, if you don't mind my asking, what state are you in? Pennsylvania. Ah, so this. Okay. Yeah. So we might narrow it down a bit. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate the I appreciate the information and taking the time to come here and to talk to us and to answer my question. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, the reason I put my hand up is I, I there's no lighthouse people here, but we um, I used to belong to it. Uh, well, I mean, I have a we used to have services for blind, and right now I'm going through foundation for blind children. Plus, my help adults too, and I'm trying to get uh, uh, we call it not electronic, but uh, microscopic glasses. So I'm waiting to hear from them, and I had my eyes examined and everything. And my question is, uh, do you have ever seen microscopic glasses, not regular glasses, but special glasses where you can see uh, like a it's a little monocular thing where you can see your beat in the distance. Yes, yes. So there's um, 
there's several types of glasses that we'll prescribe um, that many people call microscopic glasses. Um, yeah. spectac spectacle microscopes are usually strong glasses um, mm -hmm. and you have to hold things closer, but they yep. magnify. And then there's mm -hmm. also bioptic glasses, which have a telescope embedded into them that let you see far away with magnification. Yeah, um, but, go ahead. Yeah. So that's a common a common device that you would find at if, at a low vision optometrist, low vision doctor. Right, and also I'm waiting to get I'm waiting for a call for them to see if they were approved of the item to put an or cam and a uh, biopsy uh, glasses and the monocular and handheld magnifier. So I'm pretty good getting set. Uh, so thank you very much, doctor. Thank you, nice. Nora. Welcome. Nice to meet you. You as well. Thank Thanks, you. Nora. Hey, doctor, this this is an excellent presentation. Um, which I um, had a cataract removed, so I know what Bonnet is all about. Uh, back in 2006, I had a cataract removed that was so bad, it was as black as coal. That's how bad it was. Um, but... Uh, I um, am interested in knowing, would you please repeat what you said about the light over the shoulder? Because I'm here with my lamp and, and trying to do it. Did you say the lamp over the shoulder of your better eye? Yes, yes. So if you have a gooseneck lamp, you want to put that lamp behind you and then curve the gooseneck over the shoulder of your better seeing eye. Yep. You oh, correct. Yeah, that's okay. Because I, I have no vision in the right eye. So definitely, okay. This is okay. Yeah. Because now that I've had the, sur the cataract surgery, I'm ridiculously light sensitive. I mean, before, the, before I had the surgery, but I had to have the surgery. I was down. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Um, they didn't, wouldn't do it because it was so high risk. There was a chance I would lose what little, a very high chance. They said 15% that I'd lose what I had. So they let me wait until I, I told my doctor, Dr. Osakoski, take the cataract out or tell me how to do it. It's coming up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it, Bonnet was terrible. I actually, I remember back in 2004, I was walking the church right across the road. I got in the parking lot and the hallucinations were so bad, I got lost. Oh, wow. It was, it, yeah, it might have really bad, Bonnet. And I actually, I mean, it, it was, I was just in tears. I often would see things that I had seen when I was overseas as a Peace Corps volunteer. I would see trees. Some of it I could tell, because that's just, that's just a, my imagination. But there were times I really wasn't sure whether it was or not. So it could actually get pretty, pretty dangerous. Um, but I had the cataract off, and I now have the sight I had in childhood. But thank you so much for that light over the shoulder. That is so helpful. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here tonight. Do you help people in uh, like our area of Kentucky or are you just mainly for Illinois? And do you have any uh, product vision products that maybe are out of date that you sell to low vision people? And is there a, another lighthouse there in uh, Chicago called uh, for a Christian, like a shelter or something like that also? And do and what do you know about aniridia? 
syndrome. Okay. Sorry about so many things. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Thanks for being here, Scott. Um, so the first thing is certainly, uh, you know, I reviewed some of the the things that we have that are that would have outreach to Kentucky. Um, as far as vision products, sometimes when things do go out of stock um, or kind of out of date, you know, the technology is updated, we do discount and then sell. And those are those are on our website. So I would go to mytoolsforliving.org and see, you know, what resources we have and or reach out to the assistive technology department and let them know you're interested in being notified as that as that happens. Um, as far as Correct. another light, lighthouse in um, in the Chicago area, that's a Christian based lighthouse. Um, I'm not familiar with one. Um, the there are, there are several different resources um, for individuals with vision impairment and blindness um, in the Chicagoland area. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Spectrios Institute is in Wheaton, um, Illinois. Uh, Second Sense. Um, Hadley Institute. Uh, many of you, we certainly send a lot of individuals to Hadley who do offer nationwide programming, um, support, braille instruction, instructional videos on activities of daily living. Hadley is a great resource um, for individuals. And then as far as aniridia, certainly I have a, a, you know, a decent number of patients in our practice with aniridia and some of the associated complications of aniridia, including glaucoma, aniridic keratopathy, um, and, and just aniridia, it, you know, it, in the initial stages presenting with visual acuity loss and glare. Um, certainly the glare and lighting is a significant, um, a significant symptom and bother for many individuals with aniridia. Right. Yeah. What about corneal dystropathy? Yep. The cornea yep. That so that corneal scarring we call aniridic keratopathy um, yeah. when it's related oh. when it's related to aniridia and we certainly see that complication um, unfortunately as well. Okay, well thank you very much. Uh, I'm impressed with your program. Question, and that is, what do you see coming down the road um, as far as any? Uh, cures, shall we say, for a better term, uh, ways of minimizing uh, the number of cases of all of these various syndromes and trophies and <laughs> trophies uh, and such. Where do you see research going in the next several years? Um, that's a great question, Terry. It's certainly a lot of research um, in genetics. Um, in, many of you may be familiar with the um, genetic screening panel um, offered through Foundation Fighting Blindness and the ID or IRD program, ID or Inherited Retinal Disease. But those panels now evaluate um, for oculocutaneous albinism and they evaluate mutations for the various types of cone rod and rod cone dystrophies that we see. And so we're getting more and more information about these eye diseases that perhaps we once all grouped or called all the same thing. But now with the advent of genetic testing and more people having access to genetic testing, which is what is at one point cost prohibitive, 
uh, we're seeing a lot more individuals who know their genetic diagnosis. And for that reason, research trials that are coming out that are specific to a genetic diagnosis. So I think, you know, no one has a crystal ball, but I do think we are going to see genetic therapies, um, hopefully to a point at some point that we can, you know, turn some of these genes off or change <laughs> um, so that the disease never expresses itself. Um, and then as far as treatment, stem cell therapy is still a hot topic in research. I always caution individuals, stem cell therapy for eye disease, especially retinal disease and optic nerve diseases, it is, it is not at the point that it can treat you. And I have unfortunately met individuals who spent significant amounts of money traveling out of the country to get stem cell treatments in the hopes that it would work. And those are not the stem cell treatments that are going to work for these eye diseases. Um, but there is a lot of research looking at whether we can find stem cell therapies. So I think there are treatments that are likely to be on the horizon. Um, and then just in terms of management, there are new glaucoma medications. If you have glaucoma, you may have been switched to a med your medications may have been switched over the past few years. For macular degeneration, there's newer, you know, there's newer drugs that are um, have different efficacy or maybe can allow you to get less injections. So I do think that while those are not necessarily curative, um, they are offering, they will offer more opportunity for a variety of treatments. And so when treatments in our arsenal stop working, hopefully there will be new treatments that can allow us to continue to manage patients without significant disease progression. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think, the, I, I think while all of that is very, very promising, I think there, you know, low vision and the need for low vision rehabilitation and services to help people function despite having the vision loss, um, that's going to be around for, I think, a lot, a lot more time. And <laughs> no one's yeah. un got the magic cure yet. Sarcoma tooth disease. <laughs> if you have any issue with that, my neurologist, because they did genetic testing, I also have sort of uh, uh, peripheral neuropathy in my legs, and it's also contrast. Have you ever dealt with sarcoma tooth tooth disease? That's an interesting one. One that I thought you mentioned with genetic. Yeah, that I have not. So you've <laughs> you you've stumped me on that one. I have I have never seen a patient with that. Um, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> you've stumped me, but to your point, yes, there are a lot more disease names. Um, yeah, they can, they do it. Yeah. That are genetically that, diagnosed. Doctor Doctor Spath from Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia. When I saw him fifty years ago. Uh, before genetic testing, and looked at me and said, you're a very unique case, but you already know <laughs> that, don't you? Thanks, doc. Can you fix it? Nope. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think my doctor learned from yours because mine always says yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Tough. <laughs> nope. Can't do anything about it. <laughs> well, mine always says, N -n -n you know, we don't understand how you can see what you see, but you do. So that's okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Same here, right? <laughs> you should be able to see that well. Yes. Oh well, thank you. Yeah. About the genes, the uh, 
pack six genes with the aniridia. Can you explain that? And you know anything about aboptica or myonica? Um, so pack six gene is the known gene that's associated with aniridia. Um, so that's when we run a genetic panel, um, you know, certainly to confirm aniridia, though you can often confirm it just on clinical examination, that's the gene that we're looking for. Um, and yeah, but it's no, missing. that's missing. It's missing and it? it's not present. Yeah. Yeah. But, and no bionic eyes yet. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you with us this evening this has been one of the best calls i i can recall in in recent memory at all um you've given us so much information and again it's um i'm just trying to think for the it's mytoolsforliving.org and the chicago lighthouse is not sure what their um or the or or the Chicago Chicago lighthouse.org is another place to find resources. Yep. Thank you. And I just want to thank you so much for being with us tonight. And I also want to thank again, I want to thank Allison and Christine and Katie. Katie, I hadn't seen you on earlier, but she's the new member of the uh Let's Talk Low Vision team putting these calls together. And I believe she was the one that came up with the recommendation to ask you if you would could do this call. And so I want to welcome Katie Friedman to our list, uh, uh, to our team, and invite you all back next uh, in May. And it will be available as soon as possible. And it will be noted, uh, noted out on the CCLVI info list. And in the meanwhile, you can just check the cclvi.org website for this and uh, many, many years of Let's Talk Low Vision podcasts and other podcasts and lots and lots of resources. And with that, I want to thank you all. Thank you so much for being with us this evening, Gara. And have a wonderful week ahead, everyone. Perhaps we'll see you Hopefully we'll see you at Table Talk Thursday, Thursday night at 8, and uh, the Low Vision Coffee Hour at 11 o'clock Friday morning. Thank you all for being with us, and good night. Good night, everyone.